Welcome to the sermon podcast of Gamble Street Baptist Church, Fort Worth, Texas. Gamble Street Baptist Church has been sharing the gospel for over 100 years. This podcast includes sermons from our traditional Sunday morning service and our contemporary services on Sunday evenings. We hope God speaks to you through this sermon. You know, I've been through about three of these in the past 10 years. I don't know about you. I think they're designed for obsolescence. You know, some of the smaller ones, the old flip tops, are still going, sort of like Energizer bunnies. Uh, But in the last nine years, I've been through three computers. I think the same thing has been designed into them. But that blue bomb that I drive has 200,000 miles on it and it keeps going. It's going strong. It is reliable, at least so far. If I get out tomorrow morning in the driveway and I put my key in the ignition, and yes, it still has an ignition key. It's not just a push button. If I put it in there and turn it and nothing happens, what's wrong? Well, we have some expert mechanics in here. My dad used to tell me it needs to have spark and gas and oxygen. What's the problem? If it makes no noise, it may be the battery or it may be the starter system. If it makes a bit of noise, uh, 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 then it's probably the what, Alan? Probably the battery, yeah. And if it really is strong, you know, the battery's working and everything, and it just chugs along, it, it might be that I just made it to the drive and it ran out of what? gas. Now, all of those problems may lead to a big repair bill, but I think that the real problem in price-wise today is if it's out of gas, I may just leave it on the driveway. I don't know. (laughs) Reliability. Reliability. With all of these things that we use every day, what is reliability? Well, the thing that we have performs as it is designed. It accomplishes the function we expect it to first. Secondly, it does so consistently. It bothers me to no end when I get an update on my computer and I go back the next day and it doesn't work the way, and I have to learn things again, you know? A lack of consistency. It's reliable if it's consistent and there's no intermittent failing. And it's reliable as long as it works as long as I need it. I've got a computer sitting in my closet that is older than a lot of uh, you college students and seminary students. If I go plug it in, it, it will still work, but I don't need it anymore. Reliability also has to do with durability. Does it work as long as we need it to? And ultimately, something that is totally reliable will work forever. You know... In 1990, I've mentioned this in the past six months, I think. We talked a little bit about the Hubble Space Telescope. It was launched in April of 1990. It goes around the Earth at 17,000 miles an hour every 95 minutes, 340 miles above us. It helps us to see to the very edge of the beginning of time, 13.4 billion light years out into the distance, but not quite to the end. When they launched it, not long after that, a couple of three months later, they discovered that it had not been quite shaped on the edge exactly right to nanomillimeters. Millimeters that are, those are millimeters that are smaller than millimeters. The finest 
grinding of the lens on the edge was wrong. And so they had to repair it. It took them three years to plan and implement a voyage for uh, some astronauts to go up there and to repair it. It cost $500 million to do the repair. Since then, it's had four more repair missions. The last one was in 2009, and it cost a total of $700 million. But the good thing about that is they upgrade the telescope, you see, from time to time to time. Actually, at the beginning, it could only see out to 6 billion light years. It has more than doubled. And you probably know that the James Webb Space Telescope was launched in December, actually on Christmas Day. It's not going to be just 340 miles away. It's going to be at a, pl a place in space known as the Lagrange Point 2 on the other side of the Earth so that it can maintain its uh, a very cool temperature, so that it's not in the direct light of the sun. It's going to be a million miles away. Folks, if something goes wrong with that one, we don't have a spacecraft designed for manned space travel to go that far to repair it. It reminds me of a little joke that I saw. You may have seen a cartoon on the internet. When it was launched, there's a picture of this telescope looking out into space, and on the, and in the middle of the telescope, it's got a sticker that says, remove before launch. Well, folks, if they didn't remove the sticker, then it's completely inoperable. You see, it can't be repaired. The lifetime of the Hubble telescope is probably going to be about another 15 years. The one that they just launched, though, is only going to last about 10. So in terms of reliability, these space telescopes are pretty dependable. We've spent about $20 billion on the two of them, and yet they have intermittent problems. They need repair, and they're of limited lifespan. They don't last forever. You know, critics of the Word of God, which we believe to be the forever Word of God, say that, as we said last week, it is not only not reliable, but it's not authentic. And we talked about that last week. Their challenge is that it's not divinely inspired. It's only a human document, and we don't even have the original texts in front of us. The other side of their critique or challenge is that it's not reliable. It's not dependable. And that's what we want to talk about today that it contains errors, that it's not consistent internally, that its authors are not reliable. They're maybe insincere in their motives, or perhaps they were deluded, or maybe even their leader, in particular the New Testament Jesus Christ, deceived them. We dealt with a lot of that last week about the authenticity of Scripture. You'll remember that we said that we do believe that the Bible is authentic, that it is the inspired Word of God. Literally, it is God-breathed. We believe, as Peter tells us, it's not just a human invention, that in fact, no man has written what we consider to be the Word of God by himself. It was only by the divine inspiration of God's Spirit. And we talked about some clear markers of authenticity last week, that, that the authorship is genuine, that the manuscripts are very early compared to any other ancient manuscripts. The nature of the manuscripts, they are vast in number. There is a very short gap between the autograph original and the copies. And the scripture that we have, we can prove to be 99.5% accurate in terms of internal consistency. 
Authenticity because it's unique. A great variety of authors, but a continuity of the message. Vast circulation and global coverage unlike any other book that has ever been written, and it has survived through the centuries unlike any other book that has been tried to be exterminated intentionally by governments in the past. And it has an unusual message that's really counterintuitive. It doesn't make human sense. Tonight, Alan Esway is going to be preaching from Ephesians, the third chapter. And he's going to talk about this mystery of God, the eternal wisdom of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus. And last week, Joel helped us to see that it is something that really was quite unexpected, a great mystery which human wisdom would never have predicted. All of those things help to prove to us that the Bible is authentic. Today, we talk about reliability. Dependability, And I'd, I'd like to look at two things. One aspect of this dependability is that it is indestructible. And the second is that it is, and I'm going to use the term infallible, but I'm going to explain what I think to the best of my ability that means. The Word of God is indestructible. One of the markers of its reliability it's dependability. It doesn't have a, life sh a shelf life of, of 40 or 50 years like the Hubble scope or 5 to 10 like the Webb scope. We see this in the Old Testament. Isaiah 40, you know it well. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of God stands. And what's the last word? Forever. This is confirmed by Jesus in the New Testament. Some expected him to come and to do away with the old covenant. And he said, no, don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill. For you see, I tell you the truth, that until heaven and earth pass away, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen shall pass away until everything is accomplished. Now, that's very interesting. He said, until heaven and earth pass away. There is going to come a day after heaven and earth pass away when, and this is not to denigrate the scripture at all, we will not need this any longer. We are going to be with the Lord face to face. We are going to be with a living word who has authored this. Until that time, he has given this for our guidance, our instruction for the foundation of our faith through the writings of the prophets and the apostles. But Jesus himself then, when he prophesied about the coming end times, he said, heaven and earth will pass away. But what did he say? My word, my word will never pass away. You see, we will be living in the presence of the living word who has authored the written word. So it's indestructible, and evidence of that indestructibility we gave last week because it's linked with this authenticity. When we talked about the survivability of the Scripture ever since it has been written down to today against every effort to exterminate and to eradicate it, we still have the Word of God with us, the written Word. It, it is also infallible. And infallibility, I think, here's the way I would describe it. It deals with two aspects. Is, is the Word of God that we have effective? And is it truthful? Does it accomplish what it is intended to accomplish? Ignition in the key, you turn it, does the car start? Is it effective? 
And in fact, is it truthful? Is it true? Does it give us a true reflection of reality? The biblical basis for this is found in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. When we look then at effectiveness, does it accomplish what God intended it to accomplish? Nothing more, nothing less. Isaiah tells us, and we said this last week, but we'll say it again today, Isaiah 55. So will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It'll be like this. It will not return to me empty, void, without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. It accomplishes fully what God intends it to accomplish. It has science in it. It has history in it. It has uh, doctrine in it. But it's not fundamentally a science book, a history book. Even though it has theology in it, it's not just a theological primer. No, it's much more than that. It's what God intends it to be, and that is to reveal himself to us and his redemptive plan to restore creation and bring salvation to us, the mystery of the ages. It accomplishes what God intends it to do. It is effective. It's also truthful. It accurately reveals reality, what genuine reality is. Not what seems to be real, but what is real. Psalm 119 says, the sum of your word is truth. Word equals truth. And every one of your righteous ordinances, and then here, the psalmist reminds us it's indestructible. He says, every one of your ordinances is everlasting. Yet one more marker of its effectiveness and its durability. In John 17, Jesus is praying in his high, high priestly prayer in this week that we celebrate. And he says to the Father, he says, sanctify them. He's talking about his disciples. And he says, sanctify them in the truth. And then he defines what the truth is. He says, your word, your word given to us is the truth. He's also speaking about your word, speaking about himself. The living logos, the living word is truth. So infallibility, I think, has to do with those two things. When we speak about it being with, without error, when we speak about it being consistent, it is effective to accomplish what God's called it to do, and it is also truthful. Evidence of this are found in three markers that I'd like to talk about today. One is the reliability of the witnesses. What they have written, we can depend on those people because they were reliable. Secondly, because of the reality of the facts that are recorded, the events. And then finally, the accuracy of those accounts. First of all, the evidence for the reliability of the witnesses. We can see this in the number of witnesses, the nature of the accounts that they gave, and the character of those who wrote. One of the criticisms by critics is that the, we can't rely on those that have recorded what we call Scripture today. You look at the number of witnesses. At the crucifixion, there were multiple witnesses. Jesus' mother, several women, soldiers, the crowd, many witnesses that were recorded. The empty tomb, there were several that saw the empty tomb. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, Salome, Peter, John, and then not least of all, the guards who reported it then to the Sanhedrin. The post-resurrection appearances, 
1 Corinthians 15 tells us there were not just numerous, there were over 500 witnesses. So when we talk about the reliability of witness, the number of those from, that is recorded in this ancient document outnumbers any other ancient document for witnesses. The nature of their accounts, especially regarding the resurrection. We have many independent accounts in Scripture. There were, there were 12 accounts of the resurrection. There were 10 uh, and, and his post-appearance. There were 10 appearances, and this occurred over 40 days. You know, when you look at the initial events after the resurrection, one of the very powerful evidences that their accounts are real is that they say themselves, we doubted this from the very beginning. We did not believe that Jesus was raised. You find that in the four gospel accounts. Even after seeing Jesus, there were some that questioned, Luke tells us in the 24th chapter. And even just before his ascension, there were some disciples who still could not believe that he had been raised. Well, the fact that they record these doubts is pretty significant. What they're saying is, we did doubt, but we do not anymore. There was physical evidence, according to all of these witnesses. They touched Jesus' body. Jesus showed him his wounds. Jesus said that he was not just a spirit. He wasn't just an apparition, but he was flesh and bones. He ate with them, and the witnesses supped and had dinner with him. Jesus performed physical miracles in their very presence. They saw, they witnessed all of these things. When you look at the accounts, there were divergent accounts. They differ. Many accounts in the Gospels of the resurrection, post-resurrection appearances. And at first, some of them seemed to be a bit contradictory. Were there two women? Was there one woman who was there? How many angels and so and so forth? But we said this last week. Those can be reconciled very easily when we understand that they are accounts given by different individuals from different perspectives. And in fact, the point is this. If there had been collusion... If there had been a committee meeting to draft the scripture, and if they wanted to fool people, it would not have looked like this. There would not have been those apparent contradictions. And then you look at the character of the witnesses. Look at their integrity. They had been taught by Jesus, to be honest. They had been taught by Jesus to follow the law. And when you look at at Acts and the epistles, we see that the church followed the teaching of the apostles who emphasized honesty and integrity. Their practices were ethical. They did not rely on material wealth. They did not take money to deny their faith. They hated lying. This morning, we heard Scott and Molly talk about Priscilla and Aquila, one couple in the New Testament that sets a stellar example for a godly marriage. Do you remember the other couple in the New Testament that we know by name that we have a story about? In Acts, Ananias, and Sapphira. The apostles hated lying. And they even record this event where Ananias and Sapphira lied about the money that they had gotten that they were going to give the church for the sale of their property. It's recorded, you see. Some of the disciples were disobedient. They worked for their own support. They did not profiteer from ministry. They were bold in their character. They didn't capitulate in the face of official opposition, and they endured persecution. Went to prison 
and were punished. But the ultimate testimony to their character and to these witnesses that we read is that they were willing to do what? They were willing to die. They were willing to die for their faith. They were willing to die for their faith because they believed that Jesus Christ had been resurrected and the same God, the Father who had resurrected them, him, would resurrect them when they died. When we look at the evidence then, secondly, for the reality of the events, not, not just the character of the witnesses, but the reality of the events themselves, there are those critics that say, The disciples may have been honest and sincere, but they might have been duped. They might have been vulnerable to hallucinations and visions. And we touched on this last week. But go back to what we said a moment ago. The disciples at first doubted. They had suspicions. This tells us that they were were not gullible. They were not really susceptible to being duped by something like a hallucination. And they were familiar with Jesus. They knew him intimately. They had walked with him, some of them, for almost three years. They would have been able to tell the difference between an apparition, a ghostly presence, and his physical presence. And we have the independent testimony also of the different witnesses. It wasn't just one person who saw him, but there were many who saw him. Separate accounts over an extended period in different settings, different details reported. Those could not have been prefabricated into just one single uniform story. We had the number of the accounts, a large number, over 500 saw him. And you heard what we said last week about that. It is impossible for that many people to have had the same dream, the same hallucination. It is psychologically impossible. That would have been a miracle. Not only that, Jesus explains what he's doing when he performs the miracles in Acts, the first chapter, before he, before he uh, ascends. And he tells them they're going to be witnesses. He said, I have performed these miracles here in front of you, these physical miracles, to convince you of the reality that I am with you. And John later tells us, near the end of his gospel, that these, these miracles were physical. Jesus' appearance was physical. And these miracles bear witness to the fact that Jesus Christ is a living Son of God. So, secondly, I would say that the evidence of the dependability of Scripture is in the reality of the events which were accurately recorded. And then finally, we have the accuracy of those accounts expanded. These were eyewitness accounts. They were especially when we look at the undisputed core. Remember we said last week that the undisputed authorship core of the New Testament resides in the Gospels, Acts, and Pauline epistles. The rest, we believe, also are inspired, but we know for sure that they were the authors. And in this core, when we look at the accuracy of the accounts, we're we're reading the writings of Matthew and John, who walked with Jesus. We're reading the writings of Mark, who was the scribe for Peter who walked with Jesus. We're reading the writings of Luke who did primary historical research with eyewitnesses. Paul himself, he may have been an eyewitness to many of these events. He lived in Jerusalem at the same time. He was a rabbi who observed everything that was going on, and then later he interviewed the apostles himself who were eyewitnesses. So the eyewitness accounts of the Gospels and then Acts that Luke wrote and the Pauline epistles is undisputable. 
The historicity points to the accuracy of the accounts. This core material contains plenty of internal evidence that when you examine that internal evidence concerning chronology, geographical places, titles, and personal references have all been proven when they have been challenged to be accurate historically, geographically, and in terms of the persons that were represented, in terms of internal evidence. There's a simple honesty in these accounts, too, when we look at their accuracy. The Gospels are straightforward. They are, when I say simple stories, I mean that they are unadorned. There are not all kinds of fabricated myths that have been put on top of them to make them sound better. They're very simple stories. When you look at Jesus, he did not conform to the norms of his day, and yet they recorded his teachings and not the norms of the day, simply in honesty, honestly. The disciples sometimes in these accounts are depicted, and sometimes by themselves, as being less than perfect in unflattering terms. They would not have put this in an account that was fabricated otherwise. It lacks legendary embellishments and the kind of mythical tone of apocryphal works that we find later. When we look at the archaeological evidence for accuracy, there have been over 25,000 archaeological finds that are related to biblical sites and dates going back to the Old Testament. And not a single one of those finds has proved any geographical, historical, or name-related reference in Scripture to be false. When you look at the account of Luke and Acts, we find official titles, we find names of rulers, place names, and personal titles that when there are discoveries, they all confirm what Luke has said, whereas before in the 19th century, in the pre-modern archaeological days, many of these were disputed. And frankly, a lot of the attacks on the accuracy of Scripture are based on still those old accounts from the 19th century by liberal theologians who did not have access to current archaeological finds. Another proof of the accuracy is fulfillment of messianic prophecy. Peter tells us in his second letter, for we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, by the way, when did he receive honor and glory from God the Father on this earth? Well, at the baptism, this is my son whom I love, and him I am well pleased. But what, what was the other time? The transfiguration. That's the background. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made by him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And, and we, we ourselves, you see, heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have, and here it is, we have the prophetic word made more sure fulfillment of prophecy to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. The fulfillment of so many Old Testament prophecies is unbelievable in, by the critics in the New Testament. How many were there? Well, I think it's an overestimation. Some say as many as 400 prophecies in the Old Testament fulfilled by Christ. But when you look at those, 
frankly, a lot of them are allusions, indirect references. They are types or forms. Uh, they're not direct prophecies. You know, J. Barton Payne says that there are 191 that are literally fulfilled in Christ, and Henry Morris in his many infallible proofs says that 90 of those prophecies are quoted in the New Testament. Peter Stoner has done an, an analysis of this in his book called Sci Science Speaks. He takes eight of those prophecies, and he looks at the probability of their occurring by chance. He looks at Christ being born in Bethlehem, which was prophesied in the Old Testament, preceded by a messenger, of course, John the Baptist, that he would enter Jerusalem on a what? On a donkey. We use a polite term. He would be betrayed by a friend. The betrayer would receive 30 pieces of silver. The money would be thrown into the temple, and then it would be used to buy a potter's field. He would be silent before his accusers that his hands and his feet would be pierced, and he would die accounted a criminal. Now, in those eight facts, there are a lot more facts you see than just the simple eight facts. But those eight occasions, what Stoner has analyzed, and it's pretty accurate, is the chances of all eight of those things being fulfilled by one person at one place and one time in history is one in a hundred quadrillion. Not a million. Not a billion. Not a trillion. Not one quadrillion, but a hundred quadrillion. And the example he gives of the chance of that happening would be like covering, and interestingly enough, I don't know if he's a Texan or not, but he said it would be like covering the state of Texas with silver dollars two feet deep, that deep, and then some, sending someone out to pick up the one silver dollar that is marked on the underside. Amazing. Stoner goes on to say, you know, there are 90 of those that are actually quoted in the New Testament. He takes 48. He said, what, what would be the chance of, of just over half of those being fulfilled in one man? And, and I don't even, nobody knows the name for this number. The probability would be 1 in 10 to the 157th power. Now, I've said this before from the pulpit about probability. There's a thing called Burrell's Law. One in 10 to the 157th power. Burrell's Law says this. Anything greater than one times 10 to the 50th power is an impossibility. Amazing for all these prophecies to have been fulfilled in Christ. Finally, concerning the accuracy of Scripture. We have the witness of secular history. Cornelius Tacitus, we know him as Tacitus, the Roman historian of the first century, in his annals affirms that Christ was executed. He was executed by the procurator of Palestine at that time, a man by the name of, what? Who? Pontius Pilate. And it was while Tiberius was emperor. Flavius Josephus, that first century Jewish historian, Living in Jerusalem at the time these events were occurring and the church was formed. The son of one of the high priests, Matthias, he knew the politics, the historical events of the day. His antiquities of the Jews are filled with historical names that we find recorded in the New Testament. He confirms the execution of James by the order of the high priest Ananus. And he describes James as being Jesus' brother, 
And he, in fact, says, the one who was called the Christ. His account goes like this. This is Josephus writing. At this time, there was a man, a wise man named Jesus. His conduct was, was good, and he was known to be virtuous. And many people from among the Jews and the other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. But those who became his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. Now that part of the account, very few scholars will dispute. Some dispute the next statement and say that it had been added later. Accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah concerning whom the prophets have recounted wonders. But the point is, most of the account really summarizes what the gospel is about. Thallus, first century Samaritan historian, says that there was an eclipse and earthquakes. There were earthquakes that occurred at the time of the crucifixion of Jesus. The Jewish Talmud, the Sanhedrin 43. Now, the Talmud runs about 400 years from about the second century to about the fifth century. But in the second century account of the Sanhedrin 43, it affirms that Yeshu, that is Jesus, was hanged on the eve of Passover. And then finally, there's Lucian of Samosata, a second century Greek satirist and a strong Christ critic of Christianity. In his death of Pelegrin, he summarizes what I think is the essential core of the New Testament. Second century. He says, the Christians, you know, worship a man to this day. The distinguished personage who introduced their novel rites was crucified on that account. You see, these misguided creatures start with a general conviction that they are immortal for all time, which explains the contempt of death and voluntary self-devotion which are so common among them. And then it was impressed on them by their original lawgiver that they are all brothers for the moment they are, from the moment they are converted, they are brothers. They deny the gods of Greece. They worship the crucified sage. They live after his laws. And this they take quite on faith, with the result that they despise all worldly goods alike, regarding them merely as common property. Friends, if I were going to write a summary of the core of the New Testament message, which reveals the mystery of God and his eternal purpose in Jesus Christ, I do not think that I could have done a better job of it than that by a second century Greek satirist. There is external evidence from outside the New Testament by writers who confirm much of the core of the New Testament. I think Lucian was right, though. Let me conclude with this. Lucian was right. We're always going to have critics. The Lord is always going to have those that challenge his word. No matter how many silver coins you stack up on the state of Texas, no matter how many laws of probability we quote, there will always be those that will doubt. There will always be those that say it cannot be true. There will always be those that reject miracles. There will always be those that, that reject the supernaturality of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. There will be those that deny those. I believe the Bible is authentic. I believe the Bible is reliable. 
and dependable. You know, over the past 15 weeks or so, I've quoted many facts, some scientific stuff, a lot of reasonable arguments. After all, Paul tells us that we need to be instant in season. We need to be ready at any moment to do what? To give a reasoned argument when they ask us to give evidence for the hope that is in us. And I think that that is incumbent on us to do that, to search science, to understand logic, to put forth a reasonable argument. But when it comes right down to it, it's not just a circular argument. I believe this is the authentic word of God because it says it is the authentic word of God. No, it goes beyond that. It goes beyond that. It's not only because I read it in here, although I do believe it because it's read in, the, in there. I believe that fact because his spirit bears witness to my spirit that I am his child. I know this fact because I believe in the one who wrote it. I believe in the living word, and he has given me his spirit. I know not what I have believed. How does the hymn go? I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. You see, Lucian of Samosata ultimately was, I think, right on. They take these things based on what? On faith. Because we know him, we follow him. And he is the author of the word. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. He is the authentic word of God that has come to us. He is the inspirer of scripture through whom the Holy Spirit gave us. He is the reliable and dependable one. Next week, we're going to celebrate that he has risen. And beyond that, when we come to Pentecost, we are going to celebrate the fact that he is glorified. And beyond that, every day of the week, every moment, every hour of the day, we know this and we believe this as his followers, that he is coming again. He is dependable, he is reliable, and that he has promised he will fulfill. And God's people said, amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have kept your covenant, you have kept your promise. You have revealed your mystery of the ages through your son Jesus Christ and have accomplished your eternal purpose as we will hear tonight according to the wisdom of your ways with the, which the world does not understand. And we give thanks as we go through this week and we even wrestle once again with the dark night of the death of our Lord Jesus Christ and the three days on the third day before he was resurrected from the tomb. And we know that we come out the other end of this week celebrating the victory of Jesus Christ, putting sin to death on the cross, putting death itself to death in the resurrection, and promising us, yes, immortality, that this mortal shall put on immortality, eternal life through him. And for this we give you thanks. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gamble Street Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. If you have questions, we would love to speak with you. Please call 817-926-1785 to speak with a minister. If you live in or will be traveling to the Fort Worth area, we would love to have you visit. Gambrel Street Baptist Church has six church goals to reach the lost for Christ, to learn more about Christ, to touch the city through Christ, to train leaders to serve Christ, to embrace the world with Christ, and to build strong families in Christ. Please join us for our next episode.